This is a special series of the Act On podcast, exploring the challenges Londoners are facing during the coronavirus outbreak and what we can do to overcome them and support one another. This is Act On, Health and Race. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Amol. My name is Byron Johnson-Brown. I'm representing Thrive London, which is a mental health awareness partnership. And today we are going to be speaking about health and race. I'm joined today by some fantastic future leaders and change makers. So I'll just go around and introduce everyone. First, it's Charlotte. Hello, everyone. I'm Charlotte. I'm here um, on behalf of the Pair Outreach team at City Hall to discuss Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Charlotte. Sarah? Hi, my name is Sarah and I'm a training doctor and I'll be starting my postgraduate soon. And I was uh, recommended by my friend Anmol to join this podcast to talk about Black Lives. Great. Anmol? Hi, my name is Anmol. I am a peer outreach worker. I'm also a law graduate and a children's rights activist. And I'm here to um, share my views and listen to everyone's views on Black Lives Matter. Thank you. Florence? Hi, um, I'm Florence. I'm a um, work and peer outreach worker and also a medical student and I'm here to contribute to um, the, the dialogue around Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Florence. Kamal? Hi, I'm Kamal. I'm a member of the peer outreach team workers at City Hall and I'm here today to, to discuss Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Kamal and Ahmed. Hi, um, I'm Ahmed, I'm a peer outreach worker, and I'm also founder and CEO of You Versus You, helping young people to have positive mindsets. That's fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ahmed. So uh, we're going to be kicking off with some questions around COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, and I'm sure we're going to cover a lot in this session, which is all about race and health. And so my first question to the participants today is, why do you think Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and how does this make you feel? Okay, I'll start off. Um, I believe because of the misunderstanding of our races and the lack of, you know, science and understanding that um, comes in in terms with um, being BAME, as they suggest, a lot of people are being mistreated and treated to a, a Caucasian standard, if, I'm, if I can say that. Um, so when we are affected by a new virus, there's not enough scientific evidence to prove what is different in our genetics in comparison to um, Caucasian genetics that would um, see the difference in between us saying that we are actually disproportionately affected and it isn't something else that is affecting us. Thanks, Charlotte. And how does that make you feel? It really frustrates me. It's something I'm really, really frustrated about. And that's why I say we need our own spaces to operate. Um, we need a lot more medical people to do more scientific research in, in terms of our genetics. That's a really interesting point. And so I'm completely fascinated with economics and the economics of genomics and where that whole space is going to in healthcare. Florence, I can see you with your hand up. Go ahead. Um, I'm really interested in public health and epidemiology. So, um, like, I've been, like, generally been doing my own research and projects about this. And I think it's mainly to do with, a lot of it to do with um, both geography and um, deprivation. 
mainly because like with respect to COVID, COVID is an infectious disease and it tends to spread quite quickly in really densely populated areas like London, where a lot of um, minority ethnic people are, tend to be distributed. So because of that, they, are, they were a lot more prone to be infected by this. But also it, it's been exacerbated by a lot of um, um, healthcare inequities. So um, um, underlying um, social determinants of health, so um, be, having access to um, healthy food or good quality healthcare. Um, minority ethnic communities tend to live in areas where they're less likely to access um, good quality healthcare services because of just how like health services tend to be funded in the UK. So that makes them even more um, um, a lot more vulnerable to um, the effects of COVID. Um, in addition, just to a lot of um, minority ethnic people tend to work on the front lines. So be it working at restaurants or working in um, health and social care, a lot of these issues can interact with each other and compound the effects. Absolutely. So there's something about the compounded effects of COVID-19 when you add in and layer in all the health inequalities and the determinants of health. Before I bring in Anmo, I just wanted to go back to you, Florence, and say, how does that make you feel knowing that? Um, it makes me feel really um, concerned. Um, just like the whole, especially I've been aware, uh, quite aware um, for a while about how um, minority ethnic people in UK are less likely to be safeguarded and protected um, by UK laws and policies. And, and, and the COVID-19 has just really sort of reaffirmed those beliefs about it. So it makes me, it had, um, for these last couple of months, it had made me a bit upset about it and, and reinforced the belief that we should, as a society, work together to rid these inequalities because it, it just shows that when there are marginalised groups in societies, it affects everybody and eventually it will. So this affects all of us. It's sort of not just one group's problem. Thank you so much, Florence. And Mawa, I can see your hands up. Um, what's your response to the question? I think uh, it's, first of all, how, I, how do I feel? It's very upsetting to see these figures of disproportionality and how they affect people from black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, but unfortunately, it is the harsh reality. And I think that there is a colour of health where structural racism and health inequities act as fundamental causes of health disparities. There is a link between uh, so, uh, being from so low socioeconomic backgrounds and um, contracting COVID-19, as well as being from a BAME uh, background and it's really hard to see and um, it's really sad to see that people from these backgrounds are being not equally treated this this is down to a lot of things it's down to housing it's down to finance and and a lot of things but um, overall it is a very upsetting thing and it's something that the government needs to work on is is definitely equality Ahmed do you want to come in yeah um thanks um Byron, I think um, what um, I just wanted to look at it from a, from, a, from another um, perspective as well. It's kind of like almost interesting how um, COVID happened and it actually raised a lot of alarms in things that people don't are not even aware of and how it impacts our daily life. And one of the things that I wanted to say is um, when we look at why it actually affects a lot of um, you know ethnic minority from the BAME community, when if you looked at 
the people that actually um, come to this country to um, go through the immigration um, process are Asians, um, Africans. You know, um, they're more. They, there's more. There are more proportion of um, proportion of people from that um, community than Europeans, and from this um, community, you get people that are. They have their residency. They're working. However, they're not allowed to claim benefit, which means they are on leave to remain. They don't have indefinite leave to remain in the country or they're not given three years um, they, um, you know, to, to stay here. So which means every two and a half years, they will have to apply. And when COVID happens, they're saying stay at home or um, if you've been followed or you can claim benefit. Majority of, the, of people from this category are unable to claim benefit because the system did not give them that opportunity to go and claim benefits. So you see if a, a mom and a dad with maybe two, three kids, they're both not working and they cannot claim benefit. And some of them don't even use the GP. I was speaking to someone yesterday who's going through this process and he goes, Ahmed, the amount of money I had to pay recently for myself and my partner is about five grand to get resident permit. And I don't even use the GP. And someone like this doesn't even claim benefit and they, they're not working at the same time. So it might, this is why I'm not just mentally, but also when you th think, of, think about, you know, in terms of like everyday life, if, if they're not getting any income, how would you expect them to, to survive? And it, it goes the same for, for myself as well, talking from experience. I'm someone on this category of, you know, live to remain um, a residency. I'm only 24, I have a wife, I have two kids to fill. So when I picture myself sometimes, if I don't have these opportunities around me to help me um, get some sort of income and my missus is working, how would I be able to, to feed my family? Because mm -hmm. I, I can't claim benefit. I can't go to the job center and say that I want to claim benefit, even though I'm a resident in the UK. I've been in the UK you know, for, for about 10 years now and still going through this process. So this is something that um, the society doesn't really even look at, you know, in terms of why, um, you know, BAME community are, are struggling the most or why COVID-19 impacted, you know, BAME community the most. And it's a topic where it's not discussed a lot because we just assume that every everyone is either a British resident or you've got your indefinite um, leave to remain or no, you have a residency so you have equal rights as um, any person who is born here or have their British partner. No, there is still that um, discriminality, you know, there's still that um, institutional, um, you know, or strategic racism that doesn't help people like myself or people on the same, you know, with the same um, status in the country as myself to help us progress or to help us achieve things that other people uh, can easily get. I think that's one of the things as well. Immigration is, is actually highly huge, um, you know, in terms of why BAME community are impacted in this way. Uh, could I just uh, also mention that one of the clear reasons why the people of colour and black people are being neglected in the healthcare system is simply because of the fact that they, their pain is not believed in and it's more of a systemic thing so if we look at the father of gynecology um his name was called j marion sims he was known as the father of modern gynecology and he basically experimented surgical techniques without anesthesia on black women uh, so the three women that he used to experiment their names were lucy uh, annika and betsy and also there were uh, other people as well. Unfortunately, they weren't, uh, they weren't documented. He performed over 30 uh, surgeries on one of the women uh, and her name specifically was Anika, all without anesthesia 
And so it's this fundamental systemic thought and idea that when coloured people express that they are in pain, they are simply ignored. So that's number one. And uh, number two is we can talk about this idea of um, uh, the economy. The reason why that slavery was fundamentally created was in order to better the white man and to actually grow his finance and investments. They wanted their land and country, their institutions, their hospitals and schools to be created um, for free. And how they did this was through um, going to Africa and picking uh, black people and then putting them on ships. And so from this, they were able, black people, the enslaved black people, were able to create their institutions for free. So to link it with Anmol, when she spoke about this idea of economical activity, um, that does actually determine your treatment, simply because the fact that slavery, at the end of the day, was based on making the white man more richer and the black people and colored people less poor. And so therefore that ultimately determines your health at the end of the day. Thank you, Sarah. Um, there's some really, really good points there. And so there, there is evidence um, that we've seen, which is quite disturbing about um, pain perception um, in different parts of the health system by clinicians. And I think this really takes us on to our next question. And so the next question for the panel to consider is, when was the first time you heard the term or saw the hashtag BLM and what was your reaction? Uh, Kamal, you've got your hand up, over to you. Yes, so I, I guess the first time that I came across the Black Lives Matter hashtag or Black Lives Matter trend um, in the media, social media, I guess would be a few a few years ago, um, I think the first time I heard about it was when Trayvon Martin was murdered. I remember a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff coming up then. But in regards to the Black Lives Matter campaigning or the Black Lives struggle, I've known about it for a very, very long time. Um, and how I felt about it when I initially saw the Black Lives Matter hashtag social media coverage. I was in shock, to be honest, that it's taken so long and it's taken so much injustice for people to even be circulating this conversation through a hashtag, hashtag BLM, because there's been such work done and, and, and progression, actually, for for black people in in different ways you know i.e people bringing you know petitions to the government about reparations for black people deaths in custody for black people so when i saw and when i initially saw the black lives matter hashtag trending and the whole thing becoming a spoken about thing a trend in in some sort of way i was shocked because i thought people was already aware that these issues were happening and that something had to be done and addressed but clearly for me it's shown that it wasn't highlighted as much as I thought it was and people in powerful positions weren't taking the struggle and the cry out from black people as serious as they should have. Thank you Kamal. Um, just on this topic I'm just going to read this quote from a paper published in Cambridge about the hashtag 
uh, which looks at some of the stats around the use and the messages online. And it says that BLM resembles more closely the new social movements that have emerged in Europe and the United States since the 1980s. And that is more than the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Indeed, several studies of the BLM movement make this point. And so the great thing about us coming together to do this podcast is that although a lot of times BLM is referred to um, and cross-referenced to things that have happened around civil rights and human rights in the past, there is something which is clearly happening, and that is that the expectations for uh, the new generations or the younger generation of what happens next is quite different. Um, we've got Sarah with her hand up in the chat. Sarah, uh, over to you. So when was the first time you heard of the term or saw the hashtag BLM and what was your reaction? Um, I saw the term of Black Lives Matter when I was listening to the album of um, Beyonce Lemonade. Um, and that's where basically I kind of um, felt more connected to just the... Um, my feelings and my experiences as a black person. So that's where I heard it from. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. I don't know if anyone saw Beyonce's mum posted over the weekend. Um, yeah. Bless her. Do you want to say what, what happened, Sarah? Yeah. So basically, um, Beyonce made the uh, Netflix um, movie called uh, Something King. Um, and uh, people were quite critical of it because they said that it, it, it didn't really relate to the living present reality of, of black people. And I definitely understand that. I actually commented on um, Beyonce's um, uh, mother's post. And I just explained this idea that first of all, you know, it's okay to have opinions. And second of all, it's, it's also okay to be critical of something or someone. You can still like someone and still be critical of them. Um, but also fundamentally is that Beyonce was, she, I think she kind of lost touch because in the film that will be premiered on Netflix, she, she kind of displays this utopian world of, of, of blackness. Um, but actually, if you look at the current period, um, unfortunately, we're not really, um, we're not there yet. So um, it was kind of over glamorized and over glorified. So people couldn't really connect with her artistry that's the first thing and um the second thing also is that even though that Beyonce kind of mimics this image and the portrayal of black people to be something of such royalty I do understand why she is doing that because if you look at the 19th century and the way that white people were portrayed they were portrayed to be as um people of you know my fair lady you know they were always amplified to to be of royalty and you know the whiter that you were you you know you were seen as queens and duchess and, and duchesses um, and prince and princess and that was heavily founded in for example centuries in the victorian era where white people were always displayed to be of royal imagery. So I, I can understand on the other hand why Beyonce is doing that, why she's, you know, calling us kings and queens, because we haven't, we, we, we've never been subjected to such royalty. Rather, we've been subjected to uh, people calling us savages, um, animals, and, and, and people that are just, you know, uncivilized. Just to add to the point that Sarah just made about Beyonce's film, um, which is available at the end of July on Disney+. Plus. It, it's called 
black is king and it further encourages the fact that black people are royalty too as Sarah suggested that or Sarah stated that most royalty or higher class people in movies and representation is mainly Caucasian so it's really important that this film is being made and um, this film is a story for the ages that informs and rebuilds the present. This is a quote uh, from a report I read a reunion of cultures and shared generational beliefs a story of how the people left most broken have an extraordinary gift and a purposeful future this is so important for representation and equality for black people which adds to the point on black people being seen as royalty and it, you know it just gives that further representation and diversity for for us for people from BAME backgrounds for young people for kids you know this is this is the future and and black is king and i think this is a very very powerful will be a very very powerful film and uh yeah i look forward to seeing it and and more of it um in in the media in the film industry and and more that's just the start of it that's just scratching the surface um i'm just going to read you out some stats from that same report that i mentioned so Based on the CODA's review of the use of BLM on Twitter, 88% um, of the tweets were about systemic actions, 12% of the tweets were about disruptive protests, and 0%, according to this study, were about violent actions. I just want to open up the discussion a bit more, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear from the different talents and perspectives that we have in the room. And so, the next question is um, basically based on your experiences, do you feel like black lives have always mattered? And I think we've heard a bit from Sarah, but I'm really keen to understand people's modern day experiences um, and their own lived experiences and whether they feel like black lives have always mattered and whether they've seen that or whether they haven't. I would say, as a black person existing in the UK, I, I, I've never felt that this country has believed that black lives matter. Me, as a, as a black individual, I know that black lives matter because it's something that has been drilled into me from a very, very, very young age because my parents are very, uh, they're very aware of what their experiences were as Caribbean British people growing up in this country and how they were treated and, you know, how my grandparents were treated when they were coming from the Caribbean and when they arrived here. So I guess I know that Black Lives Matter, but do I think that that has been my experience existing in the UK? No, because in the education system, in the recruitment system for jobs, I don't think that that is a feeling that I that I felt as a black person. So therefore, my me being comfortable in in my blackness in in the UK, there was times when I would have to question uh, my blackness or why I'm experiencing certain things in a country where there's so many different cultures and and black people, but yet. I don't experience that, the experience that other people in other communities experience um, of community or acceptance from others because I am black. So 
do I think Black Lives Matter in this country? I think for Black people, I think we know our lives matter, but do we do we experience that? Do we live it? I'm not quite sure. I definitely haven't felt that Black Lives Matter. No, but I know that they do. Me too. I know that they do. And I understand um, what you're saying there about not perhaps being completely convinced that um, they matter outside of the immediate community. Just also a final point that I think when um, the phrase of Black Lives Matter is just not targeting um, specifically white people. In other cultures, black people are demonized um, heavily. So if we look at, for example, the um, Asian culture, the more darker that you are, um, that kind of determines your treatment. And again, it is very systemic because, for example, Gandhi, um, who was like best friends with um, Churchill, in 1903, he said that, first of all, white people should actually govern um, South Africa and that he called black people to be, um, you know, very dirty and live like, um, live like um, animalistic people that are very troublesome towards society. And so the fact that he was an Indian man that came from India um, and he was somebody that was actually idolized by, by Asian people um, is also it just shows how racism um, is explored within, outside um, the scope of the white culture. And so with the phrase Black Lives Matter, it's there so that everyone who is not just white, but also brown um, can also recognize that too. So I would just, I, yeah, that's my point. Thank you, Sarah. Um... And I think there's something really interesting in what you're saying there, and it's about the complexity of this message and how it's, it's got a universal message to not just one particular group, but many different groups because of what you describe as sort of historical, systemic approaches to viewing the shade and colour of skin. So I'm thinking about London. This is a podcast for London by Londoners, and London is a global city. This is a question because I'm interested about what we've just spoken about. We've spoken a lot about the disproportionate impact on communities um, by COVID-19 and, and we've sort of explored around some of that might have happened. And then we've also spoken about some of our own experiences and the historical experiences um, when it comes to black lives. And so because London is a global city and people have taken to the streets all across the world, there have been lots of different names used to describe what is happening when people are taken to the streets. And I'm interested, based on what we've spoken about so far, in how you would describe people taken to the streets. What words would you use and, and sort of why would you use those words? I felt that it was about time that people in London, and not just London, but the UK, really took some sort of physical action because I think the conversations, the talking, the petitions, I think they're all great. But I think in the UK, um, in particular London, people are very neglectful to a lot of those processes. People really needed to see that people are unhappy. And it's not just black people that are unhappy because it affects many groups when black people are dehumanized because there's you know biracial families biracial people so the the issue of black lives matter 
has to be taken a step forward. I think for too long, people have been silent or they've worked and done things in their own sort of way, but it hasn't, it hasn't gained this sort of attention from people in powerful positions, whether they take action on it or not, that's another story. But the fact that they're, list, they're to some degree listening, I think it's great that people are out marching and taking physical action as opposed to speaking about it in their households, which is a mistake that we've made for a very long time. Okay, cool. So it sounds like you're, you're describing them as marches um, and you're saying that it's, we're moving to a different place and people have taken the discussions that I think you're saying probably have been happening indoors and taking them outdoors. Ahmed's got his hand up. I'm going to bring him in now. Ahmed, what are your thoughts? How would you describe what you're seeing happening when people take to the streets? What words would you use? Um... I think for me, the whole, um, you know, Black Lives um, Matter approach, you know, it's, it's great that, um, you know, people are out there um, campaigning, um, you know, taking the knees just um, for equality, justice. Um, but I've always asked the questions that um, why does it have to take um, something to happen before um, we react or trying to, um, you know, seek for justice that, we're meant to be given um, or we're meant to have anyways from from beginning and and it's more of a um you know i will use the word um awaken it's like we've woken up like wow okay if this is how we've been treated we need to start to um create um our own thing you know i saw um someone posted in one of the groups them and say um i was in and they said um black um something black amazon um will be launching um soon and and it's almost like sometimes we need to be able to um, see the bigger picture, not until when something happens. It's like when we did the um, Black Pound Day, you know, we should all be um, supporting our communities. Um, anyways, you know, for the money to set to circulate within our own community. And um, you know, I'm into sports. And when you when you look at um, football, for example, um, there is no more many um, black you know managers or or, or coaches. And I was having a conversation with one of my agents um, yesterday, and we were having this kind of you know similar t- topics. And we're like, actually, if we if we have ex professional footballers that have played for England or you know um, make you know big names and and they're black, you know, have played in the Premier League, have made a name, why can't they just buy a football club and have black managers in there and develop it from there? Because we've seen. The, the likes of um, Ryan Giggs and Paul Scores that bought a club um, two years ago and now they're now um, playing in, in, in League Two. Why can't we do the same thing? So this is, I think this is another approach that we can help the younger generation um, to see as well. Don't wait for something to happen, but, th- um, you know, look at things from a bigger picture. So I would say, um, you know, the, the march has come to like, it's, um, it's more for justice and also awaken as well. So those are the two words that I would describe it as. Awakening, that is really interesting. I I sort of recognise some of the activity that you were talking about there. So Black Pound Day and sort of that speaks to what we've heard a little bit before about the economic economic injustices which might impact yeah. some power off that anyway. Um, but also community collective action and people thinking ahead of time. So I sort of get those points. Charlotte, how would you describe what you've seen happening? 
Um, hi guys, so I actually went to a couple of the protests. Um, at first I just thought, you know what, it's very empowering seeing people come together and literally like it was like a moment of so much power going around in our community and just people just uniting together, something we haven't seen in a while. Um, so I said, let me join in and it was fueling, it was good, but again, at the same time, I was like, what next? What happens after we, we take to the streets, hand in hand and so forth? Like, what actual change is going to come about it? So, um, yeah, and I was a bit gutted um, as the weeks went on. And then we had anti-protest against what was what the, the goodness that we was actually doing in the community and raising awareness. And that kind of just um, brought me back to a realisation that we do live in a society where racism does exist and it is very prevalent and it's one of those things where although we don't know who exactly is racist when people do make it evident that they are racist is that how do you tackle that because already we're seen as people who should stay quiet and keep keep it shut so when we do actually rise up against it big news outlets such as you know BBC and The Sun and so forth they won't actually recognize who is who is actually the victim who's the perpetrator in situations like that so it was kind of disheartening as i would say thanks charlotte i think what you mentioned about feeling gutted and and having to see um the blatant and obvious racism that stepped out um to counter all of the positive coming together of communities to speak about something that was important and mattering to them and i think you said something really important about um freedom to speak up um and also you made a good point about what happens next uh Florence do you want to come in on this um so my personal sentiments is that um like it's, it's been very like endearing seeing like the vast numbers of people like going out and protesting and really um organizing around um, Black Lives Matter and I do think that that should be a lot more commonplace and um I I'm I I agree. I think it was Ahmed who said that. Why does it take a really like catastrophic event like someone getting murdered for that to trigger like people to organize? Because yeah, I personally believe that this stuff should have like the I, the the Black Lives Matter movement should have been more widely adopted a lot more earlier because um, like police brutality and systematic oppression has been happening for um, years for generations. But even a couple of years ago when police would brutalize um especially black men like that it didn't trigger such a movement and i thought and i would think oh why is it now that it's now people want to organize on the streets and i think it's a lot to do with like the current conditions now with like the pandemic and people having more time to actually um um protest because most people aren't in work anymore so i think it, this has encouraged a lot of a, a seismic shift where people really want society to be restructured and orientated around justice. So I am hopeful that hopefully this actually leads to long more long-term like um, systemic change. Long-term systemic change. And I think that sort of goes back to the stats that I read earlier uh, about what people most used the BLM hashtag for. And I think it was 88% were looking for systemic change. Yeah, I think, um something i would like i would like to say is um just maybe of a final um comment is like um 
for any you know for the young for the people that for the listeners you know especially um young people I think it's about time where um we start to think um strategically as well and um see things like you know five years time ten years time if if we've been, if they've been saying um you know the system is not designed to to suit you what can you do? i think the question is now okay what can we do to you know if we're if we're currently living you know in this country and we want to make change we want things to be very equal what can we do in our own capacity to either is it build do we need to now go and create our own things do we need to use the resources around us to to make things work um better for us and when we look at the you know within the public service especially within the health as well do we need to start um you know developing or helping more young people to go into the um the health sector in terms of understanding um mental health you know even within different different sectors so when when we do go to the gps we know we'll meet someone that would understand us so i think it's, it's about time where we start thinking differently on how we can approach this type of um systematic you know racism or institutional um racism um as well because I remember there was a video that was trending on on um, on Twitter during you know the whole um, Black Lives um, Matter in in America, where a father is saying to his to his child who is sixteen, saying um, if you, um, you this is not the right way, and if you if you if you didn't get your mate to to make a difference, ten years time by the time you're twenty six, you will still come out and be doing the same thing because ten years ago, twenty years ago, we were doing the same thing. So I think that was really um. From from my side point of view, you know, watching that video, that was really powerful. It's almost like there needs to be a different way of how to tackle this kind of um issues. It's not always um maybe going out or violent, and that way could be from educating ourselves in a different way where we can um start to create things and build things that works for us rather than waiting for other people to build it for us. You know, if we've been saying the system is not designed for us, that's just um what I wanted to share. That's really interesting, Ahmed. Thank you so much. So if there are any organisations that anybody wants to shout out as we bring this to a close that you know are doing good work in this area um, or who you've connected with, then this is an opportunity for you to do that too. So for me, I want to shout out Black Thrive, which is a mental health awareness organisation in Lambeth. Um, and so they are doing pieces of work around community participation, very much about what Ahmed said about understanding the needs of their black communities when it comes to mental health provision um, and fighting for better equity and outcomes, which I believe is so important. Um, and so a recommended read um, that I would also give as we wrap up is something called the anger gap. So you might want to Google that and, and look at the anger gap and how our conversation today um, might be might be there might be a massive gap in how we feel about this compared to other groups and we were so activated to come and give our time uh, to speak to London today so if anybody else wants to shout out any organizations in particular Ahmed go again over to you yes um, I would like to shout out um, Obele um, initiative it's an um, enterprise organization based in um, North London Haringey and of recent, they've been getting a lot of, um, uh, I would say, notification around the work that they do as well. They've written um, letters to the Prime Minister. They've been on um, Good Morning Show, BBC, Evening Standard, um, asking questions around why uh, um, BAME community more impacted um, during this um, COVID-19. Um, so their organization that specifically um, support um, 
BAM community. You know, if you're a young person starting a business, um, they support you. They even um, sponsor people to go abroad as well or European countries to learn different trainings. I've been to like few countries um, with them as well and they pay for a hotel, um, they pay for a training. So they're a very good organization to tap into um, in terms of um, if you want to develop yourself, if you're a person from that um, community. Thanks, Ahmed, you made an initiative. Thanks a lot. Uh, Florence, you've got your hand up. Who do you want to shout out? Um, I would like to shout out um, this organization called Kwanda. It's a um, a startup that it's dedicated towards um, funding um, initiatives by the black community. So um, um, black people are encouraged to donate to them and and every person who donates to them gets a bit like a stake. So they're a stakeholder and they can decide quite democratically where they would like that funding to go. So whether that funding can go towards um, helping um, communities um, in, in continental Africa or the Caribbean or funding um, initiatives like training young black people how to do um, how to code or, or therapy sessions. So it's, it's, a, it's more like trying to create like a black economy and a, a lot a, a strategic way to actually um, fund and amplify and support um, black communities both in the UK, in the USA, in Africa and in the Caribbean. And also the, um, also, um, the Forefront Project. So um, um, it's run by a woman called um, Temi Wale and she um, dedicates this project towards um, working with young people who are at risk of being in, um, in contact with the justice system and being victims of serious youth violence. So providing them with opportunities to help them um, so advocate for them and help them to um, um, socially mobilize as well. Um, I've known her for quite a while. She's amazing. Okay, that sounds really good. So thank you so much, everyone. Uh, thank you, Florence. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Kamal. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Ahmed. The Act On podcast is brought to you by Thrive London, the citywide movement to improve the mental health and well-being of all Londoners.